I think it was the theologians who first started the idea, later the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. What you are comes out in what you do. You see the point? Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. This is Chats Under the Sun with Jacob Volk. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Yeah, let's dive, uh, dive into it. Dee, thank you so much for doing this. I've like, even just, we've been, we've been chatting for the past, what, probably like 10, 15 minutes. And it's just, it's been really, it's been really fun. I'm so thankful that you came on and you're uh, willing to tell your story. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to glorify God. I'm, a- I'm very excited about that. Amen. So we, I guess, just met today. I think I've seen you maybe around campus a little bit. Okay. Um, do you want to give me a quick, just a quick uh, overview of like what you're doing here at Southern mm-hmm. and like church and kind of how we're connected and then uh, and then I'll ask you about your story. Okay, great. Well, I um, was was finishing up my master's degree. Um, I, I did it modularly. I was living on the Mississippi Gulf Coast at the time and looking forward to not wrestling with computers anymore. This is in <laughs> March of 21. And um, I had the biblical counseling practicum too with Dr. Robert Jones, one of the professors here at Southern and it was March in March, and uh, on March 19th, the day before the practicum, I was standing in my uh, bathroom at home and asking the Lord out loud what in the world he wanted me to do with the degree he was getting ready to confer on me because I had no counseling ministry at my church and no office to counsel in. It was a small Reformed uh, Baptist church, non-denominational, a wonderful church, Redeemer Baptist Church in Gulfport, Mississippi, with wonderful pastors and just a wonderful church family. And when I finally stopped talking, across my brain went PhD, and I went, no, the Lord is not going to send a 65-year-old woman with a concrete brain back to seminary. Absolutely not. I was fine with my no. I went to bed with my no. I slept well with my no. And I got up the next morning, (laughs) and I was in that practicum class. And for the practicum class, you're on Zoom, and everybody has to present a 15-minute clip of their counseling for the mentors to kind of speak into and for Dr. Jones to speak into. And so I'm sitting there. I'd had some trouble loading mine, and Becca, my mentor, helped me with that. So I was supposed to go first after lunch. So right after lunch, Dr. Jones is sitting there. Everybody's online, you know, and he looks right at the camera, and he says to me, D, I said, yes, sir. He said, I think you should pursue a Ph.D. in biblical counseling. I said, what? I said, have you lost – I didn't say this, but I'm mm-hmm. thinking this. Have you lost your mind? And – and um I said, well, I said, I was looking forward to not wrestling with these computers after May. And he said, well, maybe you could come to campus and take a few classes. I said, well, that's a long commute. Then he says to me, I know someone with a private plane license. I said, that's great. What bank are we going to rob so that I can pay for this? He looks right at the camera and he says, we're going to talk about this. I went, fine, whatever. <laughs> and so that kind of started things. Um, I, I was not, PhD was not on my radar at all. That's always a better thing because then there's no pride wrapped up in that, right? Mm. Uh, and so I had no idea what to do with that. I talked to my elders. I talked to other people um, around me that I knew, that knew me and I trusted and ultimately ended up applying and by God's grace alone and to my amazement was accepted uh, into the PhD program here in biblical counseling at Southern. And so I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Obviously, it's a blessing. I think there are many people probably that want to do this kind of work and are not able to. 
And I think, wow, at, at this time in my life, when I retired from a 30-year profession that I loved dearly, that was more like a hobby than a job mm. that God gave me while I was still his enemy, um, to be able to do something like this is just an amazing thing. And um, it's all the Lord. I, I look back on that time and the process of getting in here, and it is very clear to me that I have been called to this and to others mm. that I talk to about it. It's a clear calling. I'm thankful for that. I'm pretty oblivious sometimes, and so... Um, having the Lord know me that well to say, I'm going to make this known to you that you are called to this and I will be with you in it is just such a grace of the Lord. I'm thankful. I could not do it without him. There's no way I could do it without him. So that's what I'm doing here. I'm currently a member of Hunsinger Lane Baptist Church, just a wonderful mm. church with a phenomenal set of elders. I'm very, very thankful for my elders. They have been very instrumental in my growth as a Christian, the preaching and teaching at this church has had a profound influence on my growth. Um, absolutely, I wouldn't be sitting here where I am today without them. Um, also, the godly men in my church, they're mm. there. It is so opposed to what I was used to out in the world. Um, these godly men, they're sinners just like I am, but they have had such a profound influence on me um, as a single woman. I have just been so thankful for their care and concern for me and for their speaking into my life. Um, by God's grace, um, I see men as authority figures, just in general, as a single person. Obviously, my elders are my authority. I get that. Um, my husband is the Lord. Praise God for that. Mm. Currently, I'm, I'm very thankful for my singular walk with the Lord. But um, I do see men as authority figures, and so I feel very comfortable with walking up to them and asking them theological questions, mm. knowing they'll be truthful. Um, and so that's been very, very helpful. God's given me a very distinct love for pastors. Um, I have sat down with several pastors in these last 10 years whose children have gone off the rails into the mm. sin of homosexuality. And having, having my testimony and knowing that I got saved at age, 80, at age 57 um, gives them hope for their children. I'm thankful for that. Or even seminary students whose parents mm. have gone off the rails, left marriages of 25 years to marry someone of the same gender um, to be able to provide that hope for people is just such a, a joy. I'm so thankful for that. Mm. Um, so very, very uh, thankful for that. So um, that's what I'm doing here. I was asked by my elders over a year ago to be a ch the children's ministry coordinator, and I, I did that up until recently, and uh, that's been handed off to a couple that has 25 years of experience, and they're doing just a phenomenal job with it. Um, I kind of formed partially a skeleton and they're putting all kind of flesh on it. And it's wonderful to see the way that they're impacting the youth and the children and family ministries, which have been now combined in our church and to watch what they do with it. It's just amazing. The giftings of people that God placed around us. Mm. And so I'm very thankful. I'm thankful for the opportunity to, to be the children's ministry coordinator for the period that I was. It allowed me to get to know children and their families in a better way than I ever would have if I hadn't done that. It also provided, uh, I think, a, a bridge for a church um, as we're in a revitalization, sort of a bridge from what was done before to, to me and now to what the vision is for the future. And I'm just really um, amazed by, again, the giftings of people around me and, mm -hmm. and why it takes the whole church that we're all important and each one is gifted differently. And just to watch the Lord work, it's been incredible. Yeah, I love Hunsinger, mm, and I've I've gotten the chance to um, to talk with Sam, your pastor, a few Praise times. Praise the Lord! 
Yeah, he's such an encouraging person, eh? He is. Like, I cannot, yeah, he's got some, some superpower in that, just like being able to make every person that he's, uh, that I've ever heard him ever interact with, mm -hmm. just leave that conversation feeling so encouraged and valued. Yes, he's very, very gifted by the Lord to exposit scripture and to, mm. to be so pastoral. And he also has a, a very uh, distinct way of exhorting, sort of confronting you from the pulpit, mm. which I really appreciate. I need someone to do that to my heart. I um, am such a sinner and need someone to stand up there and say, you know, are you doing these things? If you think you're not, let me give you some examples. And you go, oh, gosh, you just stabbed <laughs> me in the heart. That's good, but it hurts. Yeah. Kind of a thing, yeah. Gotcha. So can you bring me back to maybe start, like, how how did you grow up? Where did you grow up? And just, um, yeah, there's no, just launch into your story, if you will. And I'll let you tell it however however you see best. And I might jump in with a question or two, but... Okay. Tell me, tell me your story and, and what God's done in your life. Well, the Lord is amazing, obviously. Um, and I did not grow up in a Christian household. Mm. My parents were moral people. My dad was in Air Force, in the Air Force as a career. He was a non-commissioned officer. Um, he was in the Air Force for 21 years. And so I grew up kind of all over the place. Mm. Um, I was born in England. We traveled from, really? Yes. Traveled from England to New Hampshire, from there to South Carolina, to Puerto Rico, back to South Carolina. Dad retired. Then we moved to Connecticut, where he and my mom built a house they had seen plans for in the New York Times years before that. Uh, he bought some land next to his mother and his aunt, and we lived there for three and a half or four years. And Dad um, has an engineering mind. He never had the opportunity to go to college but he was also a hard worker, and so he worked as a technician for Bell and & Howell and then was promoted to, to a district service manager, which moved us to St. Louis. And so we moved from St. Louis to St. Louis, from St. Louis to Chicago, back to St. Louis. And then as an adult, I spent 25 years in St. Louis on top of that. Um, and so I would say my parents were extraordinary in that they spent a lot of time with us. They never took a vacation apart from us mm. while we were in their household. Um, everything we did, we did together as a family. Um, I, I mean, the times I remember of my youth were, were, were fun. I mean, they sound odd, probably. They were fun. I mean, we, when Dad bought the land from his mom and he, we cleared an area for the house to be built, we would go outside. It was in New England. New England has very rocky soil. And so to prepare the soil for grass seed and stuff like that, you'd have to rake it. And every time you raked it, you were raking rocks out of the soil. So you think you were done, and you'd get up the next morning, and there's just more rocks. I mean, it was just like a constant thing. But it kept us busy and productive as kids. We learned how to hang drywall and put insulation in a house. I mean, Dad was the general contractor, and we did all sorts of things. Um, and I really appreciate my upbringing. I appreciate my parents' um, very much. My dad is still alive. He's 93. He has Alzheimer's. Um, I, he was one of the people I evangelized right after uh, the Lord saved my soul. I've evangelized him for eight, eight or nine years. And last year on July 1st, he came to Christ on the phone with me. And I cannot tell you what kind of a feeling that was for me. It was unbelievable. He, he started off as a polytheist, very comfortable in that. 
Um, and I, I pressed into that. And because the Lord had ordained for him to be saved and ordained for me to actually be on the phone with him, he allowed that. And I, as I was talking to him again, just about God and the Bible and praying, he came to faith and he broke out in spontaneous prayer. This is a man with dementia, right? He wasn't as advanced as he is now, but he broke out in spontaneous prayer. And in the midst of it, he said to me, Dee, I don't think I'm doing this right. I said, Dad, none of us does this right. It's okay. And at the end of it, I had the presence of mind to ask him, Dad, will you take Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And he said, I will. And I had to hang up the phone a few minutes after that because I was doing something for a family in our church. And I humped the phone and I fell on my knees in my kitchen and wept with joy mm. that God would, would do that, would allow me to see that and would do that for my dad who was 92. I mean, oh my goodness. And he's allowed me, I, have, I am his major discipler. So he's allowed, he's allowed for me to come alongside my dad to disciple him and also to walk with him even in his dementia. Mm. And it has been an incredible thing when he was more cognizant of these things, and he is currently eight, nine months ago, to sit down with him and talk about things that had happened in his life and show him God's providence in mm. saving his life. He had one thing in particular. He was on a flight from, um, I think, Greenland to England, and they developed ice, mm. and they were in an ice storm, and there wasn't anything such as de-icers on this plane. And they, they were at max power, and they just started descending. Actually, they were going into Greenland. I think they left from Canada going into Greenland. And as they, as they continued, the, ha the airplane, the aircraft got so heavy that it started to lose altitude, even at max power. It was foggy. It was icy. By God's grace, when the clouds broke, they were right over the airport at Greenland, and they landed almost immediately on the runway. And Dad said when they got out of that aircraft, he said he got on his knees and kissed the ground and thanked God. Dad, in my lostness, had more sense Mm. about the Lord that I ever did in my life. And I, I, just, I just talked to him about, Dad, do you see why God saved your life there? It was to save your soul at age 92. Mm. I mean, that's what he had in mind for you. When I go to visit him, I read the Bible to him. I've been reading to him because he has macular degeneration. He can't see as hearing mm. aids. Um, and so I read to him. And it's been remarkable to see how God's word just affects him and to see the fruit of things. Dad would bring up before currently, again, he's a little further along, but um, a few months back, he would bring up things that he would say to me that we never talked about that I know the Lord was speaking into his life. Mm. Um, and so we've seen fruit, and I'm very thankful, very thankful for that. Mm. So that's my parents. That's my upbringing. I really admired my mom. Um, she was very driven, she was life of the party kind of a thing, five foot nothing, a power of nature, honestly. Um, and so that's how I grew up. Um, I would say she was a, a nominal Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, she had had a first marriage, and the man that she married was not very nice to her. Um, there was some physical abuse, sexual abuse, and he also was a serial adulterer. Mm -hmm. And when she applied to the Catholic Church for um, a divorce, it was denied. Um, and so she had kind of a love-hate relationship with them based on that. Um, so I remember going through communion. I remember sitting in a Catholic church and being able to say with the priest in Latin the Mass. I had no idea what it meant. 
There was no mention of Jesus that I recall. And so that's how I grew up. Um, I'm very grateful for my upbringing and for my parents and my siblings. Um, very grateful for that. And so I would say that I initially encountered these desires um, of, for coveting of someone of the same sex, probably in high school. Mm. Um, wasn't really felt, I think, as I look back now, unusually close to women, um, I think in a way that's not obviously God-honoring, didn't really act on that um, until I was 20 or 21 and got involved with someone that I worked with. Um, I, I chose the sin of homosexuality. I dated uh, men when I was in high school. Um, and even in college, I actually dated a guy that I thought was ready to marry me. And we were visiting my parents uh, at their home in St. Louis at the time so he could meet them. And I remember sitting on his lap I think it was about age 21 at that point. I really cared for him. He was the perfect guy for me at that time. Um, going into the Navy, wanted to be a nuclear engineer. Just a, a great guy, um, honestly. And I'm sitting on his lap in my parents' living room, and we're all chatting. And seemingly out of nowhere at that time, across my brain goes, no man is going to rule over me. And so I broke it off. I broke his heart. I really regret that, um, that I did that to him. And that's really when I started, I chose uh, the sin of homosexuality to engage in it. And I did that. So I lived as a homosexual um, for 37 years. Mm. Um, really one partner after another. Basically, the grass is always greener, right, on the other side. Um, had a child with a woman in that sin, um, was able to be around him for five years, loved him, never knew you could love someone like that. He was a walking, talking advertisement for having more children. So easy, so distractible. Little boy, his name is Chris. Um, just a wonderful child. It's a, it was a wonderful, gracious act of God in my sinfulness to allow for that pregnancy to take hold because we used uh, artificial insemination through an uh, MD friend of mine um, to allow that to even happen. The Lord was gracious. He gave me a taste of motherhood for five years, which I am just so thankful for that. Um, the woman I, that I used to live with that had him, that had Christopher, um, ultimately cut me off. And so the last time I saw him, he was age five. He's 28 years old currently. Um, I have no idea where he is or what his state is. I have prayed over the last 10 years for his salvation and for the salvation of his mother. Um, and, and I hope the Lord has, has made himself known to them. Um, I don't regret bringing a life into the world, but I certainly regret the way that I did it. It is absolutely contrary to God's created order. Um, and I really, the really odd thing, the ironic thing is I really contemplated doing that. I thought about it for about a year before I actually acquiesced to doing it. And I was so concerned in my lost state, and this is God's grace. I was so concerned about what kind of life he would have, a child would have in that setting with two moms. Um, and this was, this, so that was something you were thinking about. Yes. Yeah. I, I actively resisted the idea because of that, um, which is Ironic. It, ha it has to be the Lord because I was so selfish as a lost person. I was supremely selfish. Um, and so I'm thankful for that um, 
I would say that being cut off from him is one of the most painful things I've ever gone through. I, it was the only time in my life I actively considered suicide. Um, and it's only because God has his eye on me to save my soul years later that I, I got through that. It was extraordinarily painful. Mm. Um, I remember his birthday. I think of him on those day on that day. Um, and because God is a healer, it's not as painful as it was, but, um, it certainly, I'm still thankful for it and thankful for my salvation. I can look back at that and say, God was providential in it. Mm. And while I'm a sinner and I was a sinner, um, that he allowed it and that he's redeeming and healing it. Um, I'm very thankful for that. So, um, as far as the story of my salvation, um, so I lived a life, I mean, I was, I was a scientist. I was a physician's assistant in pathology. I saw God's handiwork every day, and I mm. was just suppressing the life out of the truth of that. He, God was nowhere on my radar. I had not given much thought to where things come from or how things came to be. Um, I was just very ambivalent about those things. Um, and so... I was involved in a relationship with a woman. I was living in Gulfport, Mississippi at the time, working at a local hospital as a physician's assistant in pathology, loved my job. It was more like a hobby than a job. God gave me that career while I was still his enemy, again, a sign of his tremendous grace. Um, and it suited me well, and I'm very thankful for that, to be able to do that. So I was living with a woman there who was from uh, southern Louisiana, and we were there in southern Louisiana, uh, in Homa, actually, uh, for the weekend. This was in August of 2013. And uh, her niece and nephew-in-law invited us to church. And I said, sure, whatever. I mean, yeah. I mean, it didn't, didn't really matter to me. Um, and so I just, to preface that, prior to that, I, in the department I was working in, there were two pathologists who got saved in that department ahead of me. I was close to all four of these men. They were wonderful uh, physicians, and I, they treated me as a colleague. Um, it was a wonderful place to work. And the head of that group, Charles, presented the gospel to me one day. And this was a couple, I think a year or two before my salvation. I was standing in his office. We were talking about work, and he brought the gospel to me. And I stood there, and I was incensed. I was so angry that he would call me a sinner and I wanted to leave his office, and I could not. It's, I could not move my legs. I could not walk out of there. God had me rooted in place to hear the gospel. And when he finished, I walked back to my office, muttering under my breath. I kind of closed my door to my office, and I said, in my pride and arrogance, if that's what it takes for him to behave, then that's fine for him. Um, and I went about my business. So a year or two after that, I'm, I was in Homa, Louisiana with a woman I was living with, visiting her family there, and we were invited to church. And I said, sure, why not? And um, I remember... Well, I'm just, <clears throat> what's your perspective on, on kind of Christians at this point? I, religion in general. Yeah, well, my view of Christians was funneled through the Westboro Baptists, probably. Huh? Um, and one of the reasons for that was, of course, they're very public. Mm. But secondly, I had gone over to Pensacola one summer. There's a large gathering of homosexuals there at, on Memorial Day, mm. um, like 10,000. I mean, there's a huge gathering there. And on, on my way there, uh, on the side of the road, were people from Westboro Baptist Church mm. condemning us all to hell. 
And so I was very, um, I was very fearful, especially of Baptists, which is funny now because I am one. <laughs> You're at the yeah. Southern Baptist. Amen. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I was very fearful of them, and so that was my idea of of Christians. Um, and I, it's like I assumed that all of them were Baptists. I don't know, whatever. You know, mm. your your mind is darkened as a lost person. It's the typical thinking of a spiritually lost person. But, um, and so that was my framework for that. And I had tried going to Baptist to a Baptist church once when I moved down to Gulfport. Um, when I saw what had happened to Charles, I, I walked into a ba- and I really expected not to be able to do this, but I did. And I was so uncomfortable in there. Of course, you're lost. You're not going to be comfortable in a church. And I left there and I never went back. But what, what kind of, what was going through your mind to even want to set foot in a church in the first place? I don't, I don't know. I think, um, I mean, if you think about living a lost life for that long, I mean, mm. I had gone through many, many, many idols that had failed me. Um, and so I can't, I really can't speak to what prompted me to do that as I sit here. I'm not sure uh, about that. It was the same church that the pathologist and his wife were attending at the time, and I saw him in the distance, but I didn't make myself known. I sat in the back, and uh, when the sermon was over, left promptly. Hmm. Um, and so, and I also, obviously, I was, I was also influenced by the community I was in. Hmm. So we can't leave that out. I was very involved in the uh, homosexual community in the part of the community that was active in sports. Um, I've always been an athlete, been an athlete all my life. I still am to some degree, even in my older age. Um, but And so I was also influenced by the thoughts of others around yeah. me in that community. Yeah, and the reason, I guess the reason I'm asking is sometimes I've found it helpful to try and, or to understand people more complexly mm. who who grew up so differently than, than many of like my listeners. Right. Right. And so even just to hear like, you know, what, what someone who's lost living in a, in a homosexual lifestyle, what, right. what, what brings them to set foot in a church? Or even it's just interesting to me that you were thoughtful and mindful of bringing a child into the world with two mothers. That's the Lord's grace yeah, in my lost life. Hmm. Yeah. That is absolutely the Lord. What his purpose was to bring me into that church. I can't, I can't speak to, but obviously, I mean, we know he's sovereign over all things. And so he had a purpose and a reason for that. It, it might have played a part in my salvation. I don't know. Um, but, and so I'm in Homa. It's August of 2013. It's hot. It's like the seventh ring of hell in Homa. There's no breeze. You're surrounded by bayous. It's very humid. Um, I get out of the car, and of course, I'm dressed. Um, I'm dressed in a, a man's shirt and pants. My hair is very short. At the time, I was convinced that I had to appear that way to the world um, by my own sinfulness, obviously, and the influence of the community that I was in. It's ironic to me that even in that community, the the um, gender binary is still preserved mm-hmm. in a perverted way, obviously, right? You have women that want to act and, and be like men and women who are acting in like women, that's just an interesting sort of a sidetrack, but mm-hmm. it, it is. It has been, especially as a saved person, that's interesting 
as I look back on that. And so I got out of the car and I um, looked at this church and it was a one-story utilitarian metal building, not a big Baptist edifice. Mm. And this is the church you're going to with the family of the person that you're with, right? Right. I'm. We're we're with her niece and nephew yeah. in law. So there's just four of us. Yeah. This is the story that you were telling before I interrupted you. That yes, no worries. Yeah. no worries. And so it's a non-denominational church. Um, and I looked at this building and I said to myself, I can walk in here. Hmm. But I w- walked toward it, anticipating having to fight for my identity, not what I saw as my identity. Not physically, but you understand, I think, what I'm saying. I had to defend what I felt was my identity. I, I walked in with that demeanor, thinking that the person, who, whoever was at the door, was going to take one look at me and say, get out, your kind's not welcome here. That's what I was expecting. Mm. And so I, I walked in, and I'm a hugger by nature. There was a woman at the door. She grabbed me. She hugged me. She said, hi, you're welcome here. We're glad you came. Would you like a cup of coffee? I hugged her back. But when she let me go, I had no idea what to do with that. I was so disoriented by that. I wasn't what I was expecting at all. So I went and I sat down. I knew three other people in that church. It was packed out. The service started, and I started weeping uncontrollably. I could not stop. I felt like my heart was going to explode in my chest. It hurt. And the pastor made what I now know is an altar call. And when I tell you that I could not stop from walking to that man that I didn't know from Adam's house cat and standing in front of him for I didn't it didn't even cross my mind what for I I just had to get to him Mm -hmm. I was desperate to go down to him it didn't matter what you placed in front of me I was going to go stand in front of this man I did not know and I went down there and I stood in front of him and they're worshiping the Lord and singing hymns and people behind me that I did not know walked up to me placed their hands on my back and they're praying out loud for me and I can hear them And the pastor puts one hand on each shoulder and he leans up to my left ear and he says to me, how can I pray for you today? And when I tell you amidst the weeping and the pain in my heart, the only words I could get out of my mouth at that time were I feel so unworthy. I saw Christ, his holiness and my sinfulness in that instant and almost dropped to my knees in front of that man. I went back to my chair, continued to weep and felt like my heart was going to explode. And when I walked out of that church, God dropped a load of peace on me like I had never felt in my entire life. I had no idea what had happened to me. I called my sister and brother-in-law. They're the only other, they were until dad got saved last year, the only other Christians in my family. And Joe has known me. He's my age. He's, they've been married for 45 years. He has known me since I was 22 years old. And they have walked with me. They have loved me where I was. They included me in their family. Even when my mom threatened to disown me, they stood by me, mm-hmm. and I'm very close to them, and they're now grown children who are married and have their own children. Um, and so I called Joe, and I said, Joe, he said, what? I said, let me tell you what just happened to me. And so I recalled what had happened, and he said to me, D, he said, you almost dropped the phone. I said, what? He said, you just got saved. I said, what? I had no idea what that had meant, but it resonated with something deep inside me because I knew that the woman that had walked into that church was 180 degrees separated from the woman that walked out. I looked the same on the outside, but something amazing had happened inside. Mm. That started my walk with the Lord. I started attending a non-denominational church. 
in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, a church that the man who evangelized me and his wife, the pathologist and his wife had moved to. I started I started there with the woman I was living with. She indicated that she thought that her faith was rekindled when I got saved. I don't know if that's true. I pray it's true. I pray that she is and that she's living a life of holiness at this time. Um, but that's where we started. We started going to church together. She and I, I, I had a voracious appetite for God's word. I was reading the Bible. I read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology mm-hmm. twice. I, anything I could get my hands on, I was reading. And so I got saved in August. By September, October, I knew I needed to be baptized, just from what I'd read in God's Word and other mm. sources. In January of 14, I got baptized. And I can tell you that from the moment of my salvation until sitting in the congregation in February of 14, that the physical aspect of our relationship was dead in the water. I was terrified to go in that direction. I put barriers around myself. I lived in that house with the gal that I was living with for 18 months after my salvation. And it was one of the most difficult, painful things I've ever done. But I, I was terrified to step away from the peace um, and the grace that I had felt from God. I didn't want to do anything to endanger that. And so I was baptized in January of 2014. I remember standing in the baptismal with one of my pastors, and he asked the usual questions that you ask someone in a baptismal. And I remember looking out. um, I had my glasses off, and I was looking out, and I was just talking to myself and the Lord, what is this going to cost me? What is my faith going to cost me? Because I know it's going to cost me. And I remember feeling uncertain and fearful even, and the pastor took me and placed me under the waters, and I remember looking up at the surface of the water and being brought up out of that, and when he brought me up out of the water of baptism, I didn't care what it cost me. Mm. I, I just wanted to follow the Lord by his grace. I mean, it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with him, um, and I was grateful for it. So in February, this woman that I was living with that at the time, we were sitting in the congregation listening to the pastor preach, and he was preaching on sin, and he said, you know, it's not enough for us to say that we're sinners. We have to turn away from our sin and repent of it, and driving home after that sermon and even the next morning, um, she asked me, what do you think that means? And I said, that means we have to turn away from the physical aspect of our relationship and never go back, and I am so thankful for that and the strength that God gave me in the following months as I remained there trying to figure out how to separate our household. I knew that I was called to do it, um, trying to figure out how to do that and not ruin us both emotionally and financially. Um, I just couldn't figure it out. I spent my weekdays going back and forth to work, crying out to the Lord, um, going both ways, saying, help me. I don't know how to do this. I know I need to do it, but I don't know how to do it. And finally, through one of my coworkers, um, a word from the Lord. I was talking, Jack is his name. I was talking to Jack, um, one of the pathologists that I was working with. He was a Christian also. And I said, I just don't know what to do about the housing issue. And he looked right at me and he said, why don't you just give her the house? I said, from God's mouth to yours and mine. I said, that's a perfect solution. She wanted to stay in Gulfport. Mm-hmm. She <clears throat> didn't, she loved the house. She loved the location. And... Uh, a week or so later, after she came home, 
uh, when she was on a cruise, we sat in the backyard and I said, I have two things to say to you and I want you to listen to both. And she said, okay. And I said, we have to separate the household. And she looked at me and she said, why do we have to do that? We're not doing anything. I said, I, I said, no, we're not. We're at this point, we're in separate bedrooms mm. on opposite sides of the house. We're not, but everyone around us in this area knows us as a homosexual couple and we're profaning God's name. And so it's biblical. We need to separate the household. And I said, but I want you to listen to what else I have to say to you. And she said, okay. I said, God's called me to give you this house and I want to give you this house. And she looked right at me and she said, I, I want a week to think about it. I said, okay. I said, that's fine. I was terrified she wasn't going to allow me to do what the Lord had called me to do. But at the end of the week, we were walking the dogs. And she said to me, okay, I've made my decision. I said, okay. She said, um, I'm going to take the house. And I just broke, broke out in tears. Uh, I was so relieved that she had allowed me to do what the Lord had asked mm. me to do. But then God is so great and sees everything. I was oblivious. She turned to me and she said, you can stay in the house and pay $400 a month in rent for as long as it takes you to save enough money to move and to have the money you need for a deposit on an apartment. Mm. I, that had never crossed my mind. Do you see how God has provided? I mean, in my obliviousness, he, said, he steps in, I'm completely unknown to me, and makes a provision like that. Mm. And again, I'm weeping over his grace for a sinner like me. And so that's what I did. I, I spent a couple months in the house after that, and then she helped me pack. She helped me move. She helped me unpack. I mean, unbelievable grace. Unbelievable grace. And then finally, God called me shortly thereafter to cut off all communication with her. No email, no text, no meeting out in public for lunch and that sort of thing. And I knew it was biblical. Again, God had called me to tell her that. I picked up the phone, and we talked about it, and she agreed with it. And those were the, the two weeks after that were probably some, they were one of the most painful two weeks I'd ever spent. Looking back um, after that situation, I could see that I was actually using her as a security, mm -hmm. a source of security. Um, also, there's this temptation aspect to it. Obviously, God wanted me pulled out of that situation uh, for at least those two things. And I'm really grateful to the Lord um, he had pulled me, he had pulled us out of the same service at the same church. I had pulled out of the Bible studies. We started together at that church and gone to a Baptist church. Um, a woman in the lab that I worked with suggested that women's ministry because that non-denominational church that we started with had no women's ministry and God had made me aware that I needed mature women's discipleship. Mm. And so, um, the gal that I worked with, I walked into their women's ministry and it was just glorious. It was I mean, it was so fundamental and so pivotal in regard to my growth and my walk. I was exactly the opposite of a God, godly woman. I mean, how much more godless could you be than the way I was when the Lord saved me? And so I had no idea how to be a godly woman, and they were so helpful in so many ways. I love those women. I was there for a year and a half. But, and so ultimately, I moved out of the house and um, into that apartment, and God cut off all... Um, contact with us in, in the process of doing that. I knew something was missing at this church that we both had started at. I couldn't figure out what it was, but I was talking to the Lord. I'd sit outside that service, crying out to God, saying something's missing. I don't know what it is. Help me. Um, and he connected me through one of the men at work, one of the pathologists, with a, 
a pastor, a local pastor, because the pastor of that church that I was in was so busy. It was 1,500 people. Mm. Um, I, didn't, I needed more access to a pastor. And this pastor came and sat with me, and I told him my story. And he said to me, I would be delighted to walk with you through this. Can I walk with you through this? I have never walked through someone who's been called out of homosexuality. It would be so helpful to me. And I said, are you kidding? This man had 14 years of experience, pastoral experience. It was an answered prayer, unbelievably answered prayer on God's behalf to be able to talk to someone who I could trust about the things that I thought God was calling me to do. Um, and so we started walking together. In the beginning, he said to me, I'm not trying to get you to come to my church. I mean, if, if I had a, a nickel for every time he said that to me, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> but in the process of this meeting, um, I felt distinctly called by the Lord to go to that church. And I spent six weeks in prayer and fasting, trying to figure that out, talking to people that I knew that I trusted about that, if it was right, if it was from the Lord. And finally, sitting on the floor of my kitchen one night uh, before Sunday service, I realized that the devil would not be calling me out of a church that was less theologically sound into a more theologically sound church. Mm. And I sat down with the two pastors of the church I moved from and um, said, I believe the Lord has called me to come to your church. I've just spent the last six weeks praying and fasting, not continually, obviously, mm. off and on uh, with the fasting part, um, and seeking counsel from wise people around me. And I honestly feel that God's called me to your church, and these are the things that I've done to come to this conclusion. And I, I started at that church and became a member of that church, mm. um, yeah, in January of 2017, I think. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for telling me. You're so welcome. For thank, Yeah. Thank you for your honesty and, and vulnerability with that. And praise God. Praise the Lord. That's right. And then was that, maybe just to connect the dots to here, is that where you were until moving to Southern? Yes. Okay, at that church. Yes. I. Um, <clears throat> and how many years did you were you a member of that church? See, I moved up here in 21, so I would say four Four years? Oh, we came here in the same place. Yeah. Or the same time. Yeah, in November 21 is when I moved up here. And so that church, oh my gosh. One of the other things um, that happened to me in regard to that church in particular was when I felt called to move to that church, and I started the first Sunday I came to that church, I had never been exposed to expositional preaching. Mm. And the thing that was missing in the other church, I sat in the back pew and when Aaron started preaching, I wept. I was so starved for that. I, I had no words for it. I just wept and wept and wept. And I went home and every night after work, I would go home and I would listen to three and four sermons at night. I could not get enough of it. It, it was so soul building, so soul feeding I mean, I just, I was desperate for it. And mm. I realized that was the missing piece in the, in the first church I was in. Um, it was so gracious of God to put me there. I started bugging the elders. How can I be useful in God's kingdom? I mean, like the persistent widow, right? And ultimately, after about a year of me being there, them feeling like they knew me, the pastor came to me, the head pastor. And we sat down and he said, I had three 
I have three things to mention to you that we think are possibilities for you as far as usefulness in God's kingdom. He said, but I really want you to listen to and pray about the third. I said, okay. Mm. And so we chatted. Uh, The first two were pertaining to a ministry that the Lord had given me called Unreachable that was a 301 or 50, sorry, not 301, a 5013C ministry um, that I had initiated that involved me going to churches and pastor's conferences and giving my testimony and talking to people, trying to be an encouragement and a blessing to them, um, which the Lord had used even in my um, obliviousness and my, I was so young as a Christian. I mean, he protected me. I'm so thankful for that. But so the first two involved that, a continuation of that. And the third thing was biblical counseling. And I looked at Aaron and I said, Aaron, how in the world do I connect what I consider a secular profession that is counseling with my faith? He looked at me and he started to laugh and he said, I think you should look into that. Mm. And so I did. I had no idea what it was. And I I looked at uh, Reformed Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, because it was close. And then the Lord in his kindness sort of directed me to Southern and I looked and at Reform, they don't have biblical counseling. It's more of an integrative approach. Mm-hmm. And I looked at Southern, and I felt, after a period, again, of consulting with people who knew me and praying and fasting, trying to come to a decision, um, when I decided that I thought it was the way the Lord was leading me, I looked at Southern, and they had a degree in biblical counseling, and I just said, that's exactly where the Lord wants me. Mm. And so I applied, and to my amazement, I mean, I hadn't been in school for years. I'd gotten a master's my other master's degree I'd gotten in 1988. I mean, it had been a long time <laughs> since I'd been in school. And so I applied, and by God's grace and his mercy, they actually accepted me. I was very surprised by that and very thankful for it um, and took those classes modularly and then graduated in May of 21 with a master's in biblical counseling. I, I just love it. God's given me an apparent gift for it that the those elders did recognize mm-hmm. Um and I'm, I'm so thankful. What a joy it is to counsel God's word. Mm. I mean, good gracious. It's the only hope we have. It's the only way our hearts gets transformed. It's the only thing that helps us in our sinfulness. And I'm so grateful to be used by God in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Praise God and thank God for that woman who gave you a hug. Yes. In that first church. I'm just, I'm so struck by... Um, a greeter who was just like faithful and, and showing a little bit of love in a l- in that little context. A- absolutely. Cause that, am I right? Like that, 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 that little slice of time walking that pathway up yes. to that doorway was a really important slice of time. It, it was an important slice of time. Um, for sure. Um, when you, when you think about God's providence and placing that person there, and how, here's the other thing, how off-putting it is. I mean, let's be honest. It is off-putting to see a woman dressed in man's clothes trying to look like a man. That's off-putting. God showed me that. God has a sense of humor. He showed me that after I got saved, and I was at the initial church that I started at, mm. when a, a lesbian couple walked in, one absolutely extremely short hair, like a quarter of an inch short hair, dressed as a man, the other very, very feminine, walked into that church, and as a Christian, I felt that off-putting. I felt it. As I looked, even though I'm a sinner and came from that, I looked at them and felt that off-putting. God gave me some perspective. I mean, how, I mean, we're human, we're sinners, Mm. and so we don't 
because we have sinful hearts, don't react well to those sorts of things. And so how gracious of God to place someone there who, who was mature enough to overcome that, even if she felt it at all, and to hug someone who looks so different than she did, who was obviously involved in homosexuality, to actually take that step in courage and boldness mm. and embrace me mm. in front of people that she knows in her church. How courageous. I mean, the Lord supplied that, obviously. Um, but I, I mean... When you think about, and I have this question from people often, what can we do as a church, mm-hmm. you know, as a church community to welcome people? And I said, be that woman. Mm. Be that woman. Look past the outside. Look at the despair and hopelessness that has to be inside. Because that's where we are without the Lord. I mean, two years prior to my conversion, I was losing weight. And my physician at the time in Gulfport is a Christian man, was a Christian man. He loved me where I was. He knew I was involved in the sin of homosexuality. So in June of 2013, he looks at me. I'm in for a regular exam. And he said, D, I said, yes, sir. He said, you have been losing weight for the last two years, and I can find no physical reason for it. I said, okay. He said, are you depressed? And I said, no, sir, I don't think so. I was depressed twice as a, as a lost person, was treated for it with medicine and counseling. Um, and so I know what that feels like. I didn't I didn't feel like I was depressed. And I said, do you think I'm depressed? He said, I don't think so, but I can't find any reason for your weight loss. And so I looked right at him and I said, am I too thin? He said, no, not yet. And I thought, okay. So that was in June and August, God saved my soul. Looking back on that time frame, you know what the problem was? I had run out of idols. I had spent my lifetime making idols of everything under the sun and was hopeless and in despair. I was not depressed, I was in despair. Despite what you saw on the outside, the happy, I'm great, everything's wonderful kind mm. of deal, on the inside, there was hopelessness. And you know, when I look at lost people now, a lot of times I can see that in their eyes, that hopeless feeling, it is an awful place to be in. And I can tell you, as a statement of fact, if the Lord had not reached out and saved my soul, in August of 2013, I would not be sitting here. Mm-hmm. I would have died from that. There is no medicine on God's green earth for hopelessness and despair than salvation. That's Amen. the only thing that heals that. And so I'm very <coughs> thankful to the Lord mm-hmm. in so many ways. <clears throat> A question that, that kind of came into my mind. Um, you know, when you were... Like my heart goes out to you for that transition away from the woman you were living with. Like that's difficult. It was it was painful. Yep, it was hard. And I think it. And I'm just I'm. I hear the complexity, the navigating this, the real like the real life things of rent and stuff and where you live and a person who's also attending a church. And so what's interesting to me is I think. In most of our churches here, I don't think any of them would have baptized you knowing the situation that you are still in. Mm -hmm. I get that. And I think that's probably good. I do too. But I I think, I mean, I know know that... If you're actively actively practicing homosexuality, Mm -hmm. you should not be baptized. Right. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think the, the... I look back at that time. I asked Aaron, hmm. 
pastor at my former church at Reformed Baptist Church of, of Gulfport. I said, I, he knew my story. We sat down and we talked one day. I said, do I need to be rebaptized? And he said, were you practicing homosexuality at the time that you were baptized? I said, no, I was not. Mm. God had put a stop to that from the moment of my conversion. Um, and he said, then, no, I, I don't think you need mm. to be rebaptized. But, um, yeah, that's yeah. good. My, my question, because I, I, like on one hand, I, you know, I know the church you go to. I know your ecclesiology. Yes. But then at the same time, I just I hear how complex that is. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you have any reflections, uh, even advice for, for people, for, even for, pa- for pastors, churches, people on like how to think through that kind of that complexity? You know what I mean? Because the, the, a right. bad answer might have been uh, leave. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. A very simple, just leave and and right and then and then we'll baptize you. You know, do right. this thing, then we'll baptize you. Right. And it didn't look like that for you. And the reason why is it because it felt like a long, com- a complex process to try and do that. Mm-hmm. Do you, you kind of see the tension I'm wrestling with? And I don't know how to resolve that. And I wonder if you have any thoughts. Re- reframe that. For yeah, me. sorry. Um, it seems like you're. I don't know exactly the, the church context in which you got baptized, but it seems like they were compassionate about the process. Yes, I, I would I would absolutely yeah. say that. And that seems like that seems fundamentally true and, and like good to me. It, and I think it is. And let me tell you one of the outflows of that. Um, I, I already mentioned that I was dressing like a man, mm. really short hair, men's clothes, um, men's shoes, men's running shoes, that sort of thing. And so... By God's grace, um, no one in that church pointed at me and said, you need to change your clothes. Mm. You are a Christian woman. You need to dress like one. No one said that to me. And that was God's provision. What happened was I wore scrubs to work. And so I I walked into my closet one day after my conversion. I don't remember how long. It doesn't really matter how long from my conversion this was. But I walked up my closet one day and I looked around at the clothes and I said to myself, myself, I can't wear these anymore. Mm-hmm. That's the fruit of that kind of love. We are not the Holy Spirit. We cannot be the Holy Spirit for other people. But by the same token, you can't also have a, someone in your church, and baptizing someone in your church who's living in outright sexual sin. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you can't do that. And so God was providential over that and sovereignly controlled it. Um, As a a Christian, I was honest with my elders. Um, God has made me very transparent about my walk. Um, And I'm thankful that he watched over me in that instance and gave me the discernment even after that to sit down with Aaron and say, do I need to be rebaptized? Yeah. And still, even as we sit here, I wrestle with that a little bit um, about that baptism. Um, but I can, I can say that we were not practicing homosexuality at that time, but we were not also living apart. And so I think in situations like this, I think people need to defer to the elders mm-hmm. and to what the elders' decision is because they have access to a lot more information than we do when it comes to individuals and the way they're living mm-hmm. and to, to depend upon their wisdom and insight. Um, the elders that we have at Hunsinger have, as I said before, had a profound influence on me and my walk 
um, I'm very thankful for them. And even after hearing this podcast, if one of them were to come to me and say, I think we need to rebaptize you, I would be fine with that. Mm. Uh, I would be fine with that. But you're right. People are complex in their, their walks with the Lord. Their, our existence in this world is complex. There's layers of complexity. I think to humanity, there's a lot of nuance. This is a word that I have come to learn mm. <laughs> because coming from science, I have somewhat of a concrete brain. And so Dr. Pierre's job is to try and introduce some nuance between Dr. Pierre and Dr. Jones and then my pastors, you know, it's like, come on, dude, come on, come on, come off the concrete brain, let, let the spirit do his work and reform your brain into something that's more compatible with humanity. Um, but to, to allow for that, people's, mm. people's walks are going to be different. The way people get saved out of any sin, pornography or homosexuality or any other sexual sin, it's the same sin, but they're going to be saved out differently. They're going to react differently. They're going to have mm. different heart responses. The Lord has different roads for them, different paths for them, different rates of sanctification for them. It's all tailored to us and what his purpose is for us. Mm. And so it's going to look different. We have to allow space for those differences. We have to allow for the Holy Spirit to work, to trust the preaching in our church, mm. to bring people to repentance, to allow them to see their sin and to be led by the Lord to do these things. Now, there's a place for wisdom, obviously, in these settings, such as the woman, Lauren, who I met with a few weeks ago, who said, don't you think it would be a, a great idea to honor the Lord and marriage and Carrie and Andrew, who you love as a brother and sister in Christ, to, to wear a dress? And I thought, yes, that is a perfect way but you notice she didn't use like a sledgehammer mm. there. And the Lord had been working on me ahead of that. And so leaving space for that, being gracious and receiving wisdom from others regarding our walks, you know, being in a community where people know you, you're known, and you know others enough to be able to speak in a loving way to them, to sit down with them and say, hey, what's going on? You seem to be struggling mm. with this sin, or you seem to be speaking harshly to people. What's happening in your life? Let me tell you what I'm struggling with. Um, those things are so important. They're molding. They're, they're, it's the outflow of the gospel, right? And so it molds and transforms us. And we, one of the best things we can do for people around us that are in our community that we see struggling with things, who talk to us about things, or even that we just see, is pray for them. Pray mm. for them. God hears us. He hears our prayers. He acts. He's constantly at work. We can't see it all the time, but he's constantly doing that. And so relying on him, trusting him, he is never going to leave us where he finds us. He is committed to molding us more into the image of Christ, and he is good at it. We are not. We are not good at that. And so just trusting him for that, praying for others. And when we see an opening, being wise and prayerful ahead of that, making, making sure it's not our own leading, but it's coming from the Lord to speak into others' lives around us as we're called to, um, to help them, to sort of, as Sam puts it, you know, help us all link arms and make it to heaven. Mm. Um, that's kind of the way that he, he phrases that. And so using that, I think that honors the complexity. Um, there are, again, we are not each other's Holy Spirit. It doesn't do mm. any good. Even if someone were to follow that advice, 
do you need to change your clothing? Let's just say for hypothetically that I change my clothing. That does nothing to address the issues of my heart, mm. which is what's driving the clothing. And so you've left the root to sprout and spread and grow. And I look great on the outside, like mm. the Pharisees that Jesus called whitewashed tombs. Mm. And so God is committed to not leaving us in that whitewashed tomb aspect. Um, and so we need to rely on the Lord for those things, I think. Man, that's yeah. so that's so helpful. I think especially the point you made about um, kind of deferring to your elders in yes. certain situations yes. who often have a lot more information about a particular situation than you do. Right. That's, that's really helpful. I think you, you partially answered this already, um, but I have a, I have a, a lot of listeners who have children who are living mm. in homosexual lifestyles, yes. friends, siblings. Do you have like advice for them or thoughts for them about how to share the gospel with with mm -hmm. them, maybe it doesn't look any different than anyone than sharing the gospel with anyone. But I don't know. Do you have a, Do you have you know a word for them? I think um, I think especially in church, I think um, homosexuality is one of, like pornography. I think is one of those sins that people don't talk about. Mm. Um, I think there's a lot of Christians uh, today sitting in churches who struggle with coveting someone of the same gender. Who yeah. There's so much shame associated with that. They they don't want it. They feel isolated. The devil's happy to isolate them and call them out as saying, like, no one else in this whole church struggles with this like you do. You're the only one. And so they're isolated and feel a lot of shame over that sin. And I just, um, I would encourage people to be transparent. We are all sexual sinners, every last one of us. And so just because you might be able to see the sin of homosexuality more easily on someone, because sometimes we advertise that, mm. even as Christians, it may be easier to see that sin on someone. Think about what it would feel like for you to walk around in the midst of your congregation with each one of us holding up a sign of what our sexual sin is, every last one of us, that it's broadcast like that. And think about the shame that would come with that and the sense of, I want to go hide in a hole somewhere. So I think starting from that vantage point and then being transparent with what you struggle with, leveling the playing field, especially if you're dealing with an unbeliever in your family who is, who is in that sin, it diffuses the fight. How in the world can they argue with you when you sit there and you say, I struggle with pornography as a Christian. I'm ashamed of it. It makes me feel isolated and alone, but let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. Where the rubber meets the road, isn't that where we want to talk to people mm. about how Christ has practically helped us with these sin struggles that we all have? There's no fight there. There's no way for them to get into an argument about this worldview or that worldview. It's you being vulnerable and open. And I can tell you from experience that that levels the playing field. All of a sudden, you've taken Satan's biggest club, which is him sitting on the shoulder of the unbeliever and pointing at you and saying they think they're perfect. Mm. They think they're perfect. And so you've taken that off the table. You've diffused that situation from the get-go. You've placed themselves sometimes in a position where they think you're worse than they are. That happened to me with a woman that I evangelized at a bus stop outside of the hospital I was working with. It was my favorite place to do evangelism. I had to walk right past it every single day. Mm. 
you could see from looking at this woman that she had lived a hard life. I could see that immediately. So I walked up to her. I gave her a snapshot of my testimony and started talking to her about the Lord. And she stopped me and she said something that I know many, many people have thought, but never had the boldness to say to me. And she said to you, at least I'm not as bad as you. And I went, score. Yes. And amen, sister. That's exactly right. What better position to be in with someone who's lost than that, where they think they're a better person than you are. That's perfect. You've taken all the fight out of that situation. And if you exposed yourself as who you are, which is a sinner still struggling with sin. And if you want to think that you're better than me, great. I'm fine with that as long as you're going to listen to what I have to say about Jesus and what he's done for me and his grace and mercy. Remember the thing, the thing that disarms me about Christ and the very thing that just broke me into pieces in front of that pastor in that church in Homa is his grace. He didn't point a finger at me. He didn't say, you're a filthy rag. You're a sinner. Not once in my walk has he said that to me. Grace undoes us. It undoes us. It takes everything out of me when I, when I understand that. I have, I have nothing. I have no fight. I have no wrestling match with the Lord when he shows me his grace. I'm, I'm just reduced to a child. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we just need to remember that. We need to, not, we need to not be so scholastic or so so blunt with God's word. We need to remember that people are complex and the person standing before us, yes, is an unbeliever. Yes, is an enemy of God, but they're also a sufferer. Mm -hmm. They have no hope. They're wrestling with this fallen world and their fallen bodies and they're in chains and bondage to the sins that they're committing and have no hope of getting out of that cycle. We need to keep that in mind when we're talking to unbelievers, that they're acting the way they are. As Paul points out in Romans 1, they have no other way to act. Mm. There's no other path for them. That was me 11 years ago. That was me. Mm. And so thinking about those things, I think, as as we evangelize and remembering that people are suffering, they're made Mm. in God's image, and they are suffering in ways that maybe we never have. Mm and having compassion on them. Jesus moved towards the lepers. Mm. Yeah. And I, I love I love what you're saying, that we can move towards compassion with understanding of complexity and not at the sacrifice of truth. Right. Because that's, right. that's all so often pitted together, is let's minimize, let's bring down the truth a little bit in order to bring up compassion. Right. And it doesn't have to be that way. It can't be that way. I mean, hell is real. Hell is going Mm. to be a terrible place, a dark place with the complete and utter absence of God. We don't know what that's like here. Unbelievers deal with that to some respect, but everyone right now is in the presence of God. That is going to be absent. There's going to be absolutely no presence of God in hell. How horrible is that going to be? Mm. There's going to be no restraint, no God's restraining grace on humanity. It is going to be awful. We have to remember that's where these people are going unless God saves their souls. That should, that should pierce our hearts with compassion and empathy for them. I mean, I don't, I don't want anyone to go to hell. It is going to be a terrible place. Mm. Um, and so remembering that, we have, 
we have more knowledge of that as Christians because of special revelation mm. than the lost people around mm. us have. Amen. Um, the last last question I have for you is, you know, if someone hears your story and they're, you know, they're, they want to, I don't know, keep the story going, are there, are there any books that are either on the, this issue or testimonies that you resonate with that people could read if they want to just hear more about the grace of God, particularly with this issue or just in general books that have impacted you a lot that you think would be helpful for people to, to read? I think um, certainly uh, one of the books I read early on was Rosario Butterfield's, mm. you know, conversion story. Um, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert? Yes. Yes. Um, I think it was helpful in that it showed me I wasn't the only one, mm. right? And so that's helpful. I think um, Jackie Perry, you know, has been very active and outspoken. Um, I think she, that's been very helpful to the church community, mm-hmm. certainly, and I hope to unbelievers who are who are in that sin, who mm. uh, see no way out. Yeah, her book is Gay Girl, Good God, yes. I think. Also, so poetically written. It's incredible. Yes, yes. Um, and I think for Christians, I think some of Sam Alberry's work is helpful, certainly for Christians that struggle with coveting someone of the same gender. Um, those are the things that I can think of off the top of my head. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Are you, uh, are you planning on writing anything? Well, I hope to. I had no idea why the Lord had called me to a PhD until a few months ago and mm. um, realized that I can actually write. <laughs> Which is Praise a, God for yeah, that. A grace of God. And so, yes, I hope to be able to write resources for parents, for Christian parents whose children choose mm. the sin of homosexuality, which I know is heartbreaking. Um, I hope to write books also for Christians who struggle with coveting someone of the same gender, who are in churches. I actually hope to be able to um, bring hope to them and also to educate congregation saying, hey, mm. this is not the unforgiven sin here. This is something that people struggle with as a result of the fall. They choose the sin of homosexuality. Don't mm. get me wrong here. I chose it. I actively chose it. Um, but struggling with this as a Christian is part of the fall. You struggle and you battle that sin. Um, you know, there's a fine line between knowing that you have a propensity for that sin and what environments may cultivate that Mm. and praying ahead of those. Mm. And then when you find yourself, as I did providentially in that situation, that you turn to the Lord. The struggle, the struggle itself is not sin. It's what you do with it. What does your heart do with that? People struggle with pornography, just struggling with that. Praise God you struggle with it, that you're not just headlong falling into Mm. it, right? But um, knowing the difference there, the struggle versus the sin aspect, I think Mm. is very important. Absolutely. And um, I mean, even the statistics are messy on this, but at least about 1% of of people from what I've read, maybe as high as two or three, um, struggle with same-sex attraction to some to some degree, or, or feel that temptation. That means with a church of a few hundred, it's five to ten people, right? And and that's that means that there are people in in probably in your church who are who need the grace of God every bit as much as 
you do, I do, the listener does. Right. And That's so, right. and, and yeah. And so it's, this is important to talk about. And I'm so grateful that you came on and, and just shared your story and the grace of God and, and your like wisdom on this. Cause it's been, you've had several of the things you've said have been just genuinely so helpful. Even just for me listening, just some a helpful new set of categories or, or good reminders. So thank you for this. Oh, praise the Lord for all of it. He's done it all. I'm just a vessel. I'm thankful uh, to be that and very thankful for this opportunity to glorify the Lord. He mm. is He is mighty to save. Amen. Amen. All right. We'll wrap it up here. Thanks, T. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast's conversation. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed it, consider subscribing and sharing and all that jazz. It's immensely helpful. I'm all about having meaningful, interesting conversations. So if you know of someone I should talk to, hit me up on Instagram at it's the Volk. Have a good one, guys.